You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set up to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 366. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Annika Harrison. See ya! Hallo. Hey son, hey son. Yeah, hey son, hey son. I always hear this in my brain if I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately Pontus is away skiing. Well, fortunately and for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fortunately for him. And we, we really hope that he'll be back in one piece. Mm-hmm. Do you ski? Do you ski? Nope. <laughs> Okay. But I did. Like, I, I learned it as a um, 14-year-old or so. And then I did it again when I was 15 or so. But, yeah, I don't genuinely ski because um, a <laughs> mm, bit expensive. <laughs> in Germany, at least. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, and, and in Germany, there are not many places where you can do it. So you have to go abroad. Yeah, you can go to Bavaria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, Bavaria, yes. You know, if, if I have yes. the choice to go to Australia or to Bavaria... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good for Pontus because they have a lot of places in Sweden uh, where they can do mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yeah. But can you imagine? I recently turned 41 and still haven't tried skiing yet. What? Even though I've been <laughs> meaning to do that since I was like 15. I love mountains. I prefer the cold to hot. Mm. And I love snow. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you should give it a go. It's, yeah. it's pretty slippery, but fun. <laughs> <laughs> slippery. That's, yeah, that comes with the. With the thing, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's... Well, it's like I did like ice skating a lot when I was a child and it's mm, not yeah. comparable to ice skating at all. It's like... No, 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 because it's it's on the surface mm-hmm, of snow. Exactly. It's a, the, the, <laughs> the pure snow. It's it's different. It's not ice. And you're also not like cutting the ice. You're just like on top. So that's yeah. why it's like pretty, pretty different, but fun. <laughs> well, I do have a feeling that I would enjoy it immensely, but uh, still hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> but something to look forward to in the future, I guess. I apologize for not being on the the last two episodes, but uh, I've been traveling again, which means work, mm-hmm. of course. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't really travel that much for fun. Yeah, I think probably if you do it as a, as, a, as a profession, then it's probably not that fun anymore, is it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Apart from uh, skeptical events, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where we all go when we can, yeah. Yeah, whenever <laughs> we can, whenever we are invited mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. So, yeah, interestingly, sadly, I was uh, in Turkey, or Turkey, as they like to call themselves, on the very day that the, the, the devastating series of earthquakes started, mm-hmm. because I was having a 12-hour layover in Istanbul mm-hmm. on my way to Malaysia. But mind you, I, I was very far from the area where it happened, and... Mm-hmm. At the time, we didn't have the slightest idea as to how many lives could be lost, right? Yeah, that that was horrific. Yeah, but we do know now. And shockingly, the death toll is currently at 47,000. And most of them lost their lives in Turkey. And about 10% of the overall deaths happened in Syria. And it's been good to see how there have been efforts on an international scale to deal with this and, and rescue as many people as human possible, right? But we're also talking about millions having to be relocated because whole towns have been demolished by the big quakes and the aftershocks. So it's terrible. Oh, by the way, Pontus gave an excellent account of what happened, even why people should be more careful with where and how they build their houses, etc. I really liked it. And I'd also like to thank our listeners, Serdar and Odysseus, uh, for their clarifications regarding the amount of movement along the fault lines. I think it was a very good addition. But I would have liked to add something to all this. I just couldn't make it to the last recording for technical reasons. Because Brian and Pontus touched on it, and a lot of skeptics all around the world have also mentioned the fact that predicting earthquakes is not possible. Mm-hmm. At least not like we have weather forecasts and the like. So the Dutch guy, Frank Hoegerbeets, or I don't know how to pronounce his name, just got lucky with his prediction. And yet now many people think that he knows something special. No, he doesn't. And his claims made throughout the years have been debunked repeatedly by fact checkers, especially things like quote-unquote critical planetary geometry. What the fuck is that? He, he likes to refer to it a lot, and he's talking about planetary alignments there. 
doesn't make sense and those claims have been refuted many many times even by the u.s geological survey and other institutions of geological sciences but what i'd like to talk about is the reason why proper predictions of earthquakes are impossible so let's see what happened in the case of this recent catastrophe all happened at the southwestern end of the east anatolian fault at the southern boundary of the anatolian plate that's a tectonic plate one of those large chunks of the Earth's lithosphere that consists of the, the crust and upper mantle. And these plates, you know, just float on the layer of Earth that we call a sthenosphere. And they constantly move around, sometimes towards, in other cases, away from each other. Now, the plates also come in different sizes ranging from tens of millions to a few hundred square kilometers. And the Anatolian plate is categorized as a microplate for its size, as it was alluded to by Pontus. And it's wedged among the Eurasian plate in the north, the Aegean plate to the west, the African plate to the south, and the Arabian plate to the southeast. The devastating earthquake that reached 7.8 on the moment magnitude scale and the aftershocks happened at a so-called transform boundary, where the northbound movement of the Arabian plate and the eastbound movement of the Anatolian plate result in a kind of sliding mechanism where the two meet. Obviously, since we're talking about huge masses of rock, several kilometers thick, it's not a smooth action, right? Mm -hmm. It has very rugged surfaces, so it's more like grinding, actually. There's a lot of friction there. We can usually tell for, for each boundary that the average speed of movement is such and such, but because of that aforementioned friction, the edges of the plates often get stuck and stop each other on their tracks. But the push is still there, right? Mm -hmm. And as a result of this, the energy starts to build up. And the longer it takes for the edges to break off and let go, the larger the sudden movement is that it creates. And we all know this annoying phenomenon from our everyday lives. Imagine when, when you try to move heavy furniture that's been sitting there for a while. You get the picture, right? Yeah. So friction between the surfaces of, let's say, the floor and the furniture prevents us from moving, let's say, a cupboard on the surface. So we apply more force, increasing the force until it finally becomes larger than the friction itself so it starts moving accelerating to be precise and the movement is so sudden that whatever you had on top of the cupboard will definitely fall over <laughs> if everyone who has ever tried moving a piece of furniture knows that but with the force gone adhesion friction will kick back in and bring the furniture to a sudden halt resulting that the vase to st stick with that example, that has previously fallen over going in the other direction. That's basically a wave that you generated there. Very much like an earthquake. Mm -hmm. If you live on the surface of that cupboard, let's say you're a bug, or I don't know, <laughs> it's actually going to feel like an earthquake. Mm -hmm. That's a good analogy. And that can be registered with a, a seismograph. But because of the large chunks of, of solid rock that cause this effect in the case of tectonic plates, it's hard to calculate the amount of friction, therefore the amount of energy that tends to build up when it gets stuck. Obviously, the, more, the larger the, the amount of energy, the stronger the earthquake will be. So we, we do know that an overwhelming majority of earthquakes happen along the fault lines all over the world, where the tectonic plates meet. We do know the average speeds of, of movement at those boundaries as well. And yes, based on all these, we can expect earthquakes of different magnitudes at these active areas, but we can never know when they will happen and how devastating they will be, or where exactly they will occur for that matter. We often hear of something called epicenter, and that is the point on the surface directly above the so-called focus of the quake, the point where it originates, usually kilometers below the surface, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the reason why we cannot predict earthquakes. And this was your Seismology 101 with Andres. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to, to talk about this first because I find it fascinating. Even though, yeah, on the one hand, it's heartbreaking to see all those lives gone. Mm -hmm. But on the, from a scientific point of view, from the, the point of view of the person looking at these phenomena in nature, 
it's fascinating. Yes. And it's good to be skeptical, but when we say things like it's impossible to predict earthquakes, we should know why that is the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that brings about just one other set of questions, namely whether animals can really show weird behaviors minutes before the earthquakes that would basically mean they can predict them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, of course... Many claims of the sort have been made since February the 6th as well, when this series of events started. And in many cases, with videos and photos of animals made several years back, so they didn't even bother just making actual footage. But what does science say about animals' potential ability to predict those shocks? If there is something like that, we could potentially use them for early warning, so it's an important question. But unfortunately... The most comprehensive review so far from back in 2018 that analysed 180 publications on the matter concluded that there's probably nothing to this. At least there is no clear evidence that animals can predict earthquakes any better than we can with our fancy equipment and science. So we just have to make sure we build our cities as far away from fault lines and build them as safe as possible to prevent catastrophes like the the one we're seeing now along the border of Turkey and Syria. But for that, we need responsible leadership, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's not always easy. <laughs> and it's not easy. And so, but, but studies suggest that women are much less willing to be risk takers than men, which uh, could be interpreted as them being more responsible leaders. So it would be important to know why is the world losing female leaders at such an alarming rate? What's going on? Yeah, because they're smarter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. So they know when um, to quit. Uh, that was a very uh, generalized uh, statement <laughs> that, of course, I stand true to. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, okay. No, what you actually, like what, of course, you're talking about is that um, Nicola Sturgeon now also announced her plans to resign. Mm. And um, she is the first woman and longest serving person to hold the office of First Minister of Scotland. And she basically follows uh, Jacinta Ardern in resigning. Mm. And you can see a lot of parallels in their resignation speeches because they both said that leadership takes an immense toll. Mm -hmm. The lack of privacy, the long hours, um, human costs to spend time away from the family. They're both feminists. They're both very, very willing to put a lot of effort in, but also they can both acknowledge that you can't always burn the candle on both ends, basically. Yeah, um, that's true. So then, um, like, people were actually wondering, why, why do they leave? Like, is it because women can't lead longer? <laughs> or, like, why, why is it happening? And what I read in an article was the theory that it is actually that, like, every politician, no matter if they're female or male, every politician will have good and bad times, and they all will have popular and unpopular times. And in this article, their idea is that it might just be that while a lot of men cling to the position, I can just name Boris Johnson and Donald Trump as an example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, The latter didn't even want to acknowledge that he had lost (laughs) in a democratic vote. So, like, at least these two people, these two leaders really didn't want to go, whereas Sturgeon and Adern both were on an on a downward slide from their popularity and basically resigned when they were still liked. So mm-hmm. when they're still like when they can still win basically. Yeah, they know when to quit. <laughs> <laughs> it would be interesting to see whether there is evidence to suggest that men are more likely to cling to power itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, positions. Hey, if I look up at all the dictators in the world, <laughs> then that's totally true. Yeah, n- not many female dictators there. <laughs> uh, can you name one? I don't think I know any, any female dictator, actually. The dictatress. <laughs> dictatress. Uh, if someone listening to this knows one, please let us know. We would like to be educated on the matter. Well, I, I could think of like Cleopatra, but uh, she was more like closer to a queen. But she was a queen. Yes, she was a queen. Yeah, she was a pharaoh. So she wasn't a... Yeah. Well, if you say pharaohs or queens are, are dictators, then... That yeah, would... f- pharaohs were basically kings. So she was a queen. Yeah, so like... So it was, I don't know. I mean, like God king or God queen, <laughs> but... Yeah. 
yeah whatever so yeah let us know history buffs of yeah and, of the listenership <laughs> yeah yeah and just to clarify we are looking for current yes. dictators or our leaders mm-hmm. who are leading as dictators in a democratic yeah. um, environment or a mostly democratic environment so we're not looking for mary the first of england yeah of course not of, <laughs> of course the middle not. ages like we're not looking for a queen yeah yeah, yeah. so with queen elizabeth the first yeah she had her moments and having people killed and stuff so it's it's we're not talking about that yeah okay? basically modern <laughs> <laughs> basically modern all right so it's sad to say i'm not sure that uh, our scottish listeners all agree but i kind of liked her style didn't follow all of her policies and stuff so this is why i'm not looking for a debate over whether she is or she was a good politician a good leader a good first minister of scotland but the show must go on (laughs) quite literally yeah (laughs) yeah that means that we are producing a show now which has its own segments (laughs) the first of which is usually the one that we call twish also known as this week in skeptical history And today, we celebrate the 152nd anniversary of the first publication of one of Charles Darwin's most influential works, The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. Just like his first book on the origin of species, it was published by John Murray on the 24th of February 1871, and similarly became an immediate bestseller. Well, Obviously, the topic itself, it was really hot. (laughs) Um, And in the origin, that means the origin of species, of course, Darwin had already given the reader a hint that he would explore the evolution of humankind in a bit more detail. But he ended up doing more than that. You would think that towards the end of the 19th century, applying the same concept of natural selection and common descent to humans that he explained in the origin of species would be quite controversial. But most of it was old news by then because the debates had been raging on since the publication of the first book. Because obviously, it was implied or directly stated on several occasions that we were going through the evolutionary process ourselves as humankind. So in this one, he mostly came up with a detailed explanation of the origins of humankind, the evolution of morality and religion, and he introduced the rather new theory of sexual selection to account for a couple of weird phenomena that deniers of the process of natural selection brought up during these debates over the years. Like uh, the design of some exotic birds that displayed features difficult to imagine to be advantageous, a peacock being one of the examples. Imagine a a peacock having massive, very, very colourful tail feathers. What on earth could they be useful for and how could they be advantageous? And the idea of sexual selection gave an account of that. And if the descent as is referred to in short, was in any way controversial, it was among his fellow scientists, rather than the public, that heated debates took place. Wallace, Alfred Russell Wallace, the co-discoverer of evolution by natural selection, for example, did not subscribe to the idea of sexual selection, because he thought that it would require too much of a developed sense of beauty on the animal's part, that only humans can have. And he also thought that even the smartest apes are too far from the complex minds humans are equipped with for our intelligence to be a result of natural selection. So it cannot be. Well, Wallace was quite a spiritualist when it came to our our own species, so that's not really a surprise. But those debates were probably the main reason for Darwin to, to write The Descent, along with the fact that he had material worth two 450 page volumes actually <laughs> so he was crazy when it when it came to expressing his ideas and going into lengthy detailed explanations of everything this is why the, the origin of species is so long as well i also have to mention that darwin's ideas on gender roles in human society and racial distinctions outlined in the descent of man did not really age well but we have to take into account that it was written in the victorian era where science was only beginning to understand human nature and the dynamics of society. But society had a lot of baggage to carry, still brought about from the earlier ages. But sexual selection is a theory that was dismissed for a while, 
then made a comeback at the early 20th century with special attention given to it in the formulation of the modern evolutionary synthesis. It didn't end up being an essential part of it, but some forms of the theory still live on. And uh, people like uh, Richard Dawkins in his books do actually use the theory of sexual selection. So to sum it up, The Descent of Man, it's a book I do recommend to everyone. It's a good read. And it was published 152 years ago on the 24th of February, 1871. And in Pontus's absence... I think we leave Papa Francesco alone. <laughs> the Papa. <laughs> yeah, the Papa. So here's some quick fire news to bring to our listeners. Yeah, and as I was talking about women before, uh, I think I want to continue talking about women in um, in high positions. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. We like learning about them. Yeah, because <laughs> there has been a woman appointed UK's chief scientist advisor. <laughs> mm, congratulations. Yes. It was about time. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> and um, she's called a Professor Dame Angela McLean. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's to replace Sir Patrick Valance or Valance. I don't know if he has a bit of a French uh, pronunciation there. (laughs) (laughs) And she'll be the government chief scientist advisor, also called GCSA. And um, as I said, the first woman to uh, be in that position. Mm -hmm. Currently, she is Ministry of Defense chief scientific advisor. (laughs) So she has already been a scientific advisor uh, for a very long time. But now she will be the government (laughs) chief scientific advisor. She was Sir Patrick's deputy during COVID. Mm -hmm. So she played a critical role to uh, draw advice and to um, be part of the scientific advisory group for emergencies. She'll take that up on the 1st of April. And she was very um, vital to improve public services. Yeah, to to do her job in that regard. And um, she also, and that makes her my heartbeat for her, (laughs) she has a strong interest in using scientific evidence to form public policy and to explain issues of concern simply and clearly to non-scientific audiences. Mm. And that's so good because, as as Cara Santamaria always says, don't think that your audience is stupid, but know that your audience might not know your words. So like your vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. And concepts. And so concepts. It's, it's, not, so like, it's not just yeah. a vocabulary. It's, it's, like, it's also some scientific concepts are not well known. Yeah. Exactly. It's like most people will understand what you say, but you have to use words that are understandable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Don't use jargon and and everything. And um, what is also awesome about that is not only that she is clearly the right person for that position, but as we know, representation also matters. So this appointment might also inspire women and young girls to go into STEM fields and to, to be like, mm-hmm. oh, she can do it. I might be able to do it too. <laughs> mm, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, that's really amazing. Congratulations, Dame Angela McLean. <laughs> yes, our heartfelt congratulations. Yes. Yeah, this is good news. I'm sure we agree that it's long overdue mm-hmm. because it's fucking 2023 already. So, <laughs> But unfortunately, she will face a lot of challenges in the near future, trying to advise the government on the issues of science. On episode 364, Pontus talked about the devastating effect of Brexit mm-hmm. on the funding of research programs in the UK. Now, science in the country just took another blow, this time from the inside. The UK's involvement in the EU's Horizon Europe program as an associate member has been long under negotiations, but it comes at a price. And the government had allocated £1.6 billion for exactly that, saying that if the talks ended up not leading anywhere, it would be used for funding research domestically. Uh, yeah, only to learn that now it all seems to be thrown out. And the funny part is that it was not announced by the government. Nor was it communicated to the research community in any way, but rather just revealed in a 300-page document released by the Treasury. And so far, not much is known about the reasons behind that, well, other than the Treasury needing to cut spending wherever they can. But this goes directly against what Prime Minister Rishi Sunak claimed to be the goal, namely to keep the UK in the forefront of scientific research. If memory serves... The, the exact wording was that he wants to make the UK a science superpower. 
<laughs> well, I have to break the news to you that if you want to make a country a science superpower, you have to throw money at it as well, because without resources, you will not have proper scientific output. And of course, people all across the board are angry, including the president of the Royal Society and many charitable organizations promoting science and engineering. And I could not agree more that this is the wrong direction. This is not right. Science should not be cut off like that. So, yeah, it's a good thing that they now appointed a female science advisor. But without the science output, it's going to be quite a challenge for her. Mm -hmm. So we need non-governmental organizations to do a lot of the heavy lifting, right? Yes. And um, a non-governmental organization that we all love and cherish and admire is uh, Information Network Homeopathy or Informationsnetzwerk Homeopathy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yeah. they actually have a really cool article out about uh, the memory of water. So it, it was really good. It's not super complex, but I don't want to go into too much detail here because then people don't have to read the article anymore. And it's a good <laughs> read. <laughs> Okay. Um, and it's in German, but of course we we have wonderful uh, websites um, that have double consonants uh, <laughs> that can help you there and put it into English. So it's it's really interesting. And um, what always reminds me of the memory of water is um, <laughs> the snowman uh, Olaf <laughs> <laughs> and the whole second uh, Frozen movie because uh, it's actually a bit of a plot twist there like memory of water is a bit of a plot twist there which is exactly putting it where it should be fantasy <laughs> so as i said interesting read it it pretty much has to do with fluency of water and now i i kind of took the the plot twist from you <laughs> <laughs> yeah i give it a read it's really interesting um Dr. Um, Caroline Sage or Sage uh, does do a much better job than me explaining that. And yeah, give it a read. <laughs> okay, will do. Thank you very much. And speaking of non-governmental organizations and the efforts made by volunteers, I think we agree that one of the greatest teams out there doing an amazing work is Skeptical Science. Well, They are also pioneers in putting out a um, game, a, a gamified version of a training tool for people to learn how to think critically. And um, the team, uh, Skeptical Science, is led by John Cook, whom we interviewed on episode 210. He wrote a comic book and their team developed a game based on the book called Cranky Uncle. The grumpy man who denies climate change and through his arguments you can learn about logical fallacies and how disinformation works. And it's available now in eight languages. Thanks to an international network of enthusiasts putting a lot of work in translating the game. Badbelv Winkler, who's the coordinator of the translation projects and whom we interviewed on episode 313, says there are another 15 languages in works at various stages, which is absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, we are talking about 23 languages altogether now, but those translators are calling for help now. Ideally, this work is done by teams of three or four people because they need to brainstorm, they, they need to discuss the best way to put this amazing content into another language. And we're talking about thousands of items to go through from single words to complete paragraphs. And that's just the core part of the game. Supporting materials, legal stuff, etc. has to be translated as well. We'll put the link in the show notes so you can browse through the, the tasks and the language-specific requests. But where additional team members are needed are the Danish, the Japanese, Lithuanian, Norwegian, Persian, Tamil, Romanian, Russian and Ukrainian groups where the task of translation is almost complete but proofreaders are required are bulgarian czech and finnish and some technical help is needed by the polish team so if you recognize any of the languages mentioned here as your own and you want to help your community of native speakers by putting some work into something absolutely brilliant that they can find very useful in the future um, in terms of, of learning critical thinking skills, then don't hesitate to contact Babel Winkler through the Google form you can find a link to in the article. So just follow the link on our website 
and uh, you'll find them. Do the job. And this is this is something we always say about uh, guerrilla skepticism on Wikipedia as well, mm-hmm. that yes. we need more languages, we need editors, we need more people to do the work. Mm-hmm. Because when you do that, when you put the work into developing a different language version of that game, you will help lots of people develop more critical thinking skills. And that is what we need like our daily bread yes. in today's society, right? It's like one of the biggest impacts you can have as a skeptic. Absolutely. And if you're you're as fascinated by the work of skeptical science team as we are, <laughs> you can even help them in their new project, the rebuttal update project. They are updating their popular rebuttals of climate myths that they accumulated over the years and making them more accessible as a resource by putting out entry-level versions of them so that they can be understood by people without certain levels of knowledge, prior knowledge on the topics. And if you feel like you can contribute, they welcome you with open ups. Amazing stuff. So you obviously you'll find the link uh, on the show notes as well. Yeah. Completely different topic, but also very important, uh, is um, the topic of vaccinations. <laughs> yes, that's as correct. As we all would agree. I think it's one of the classical skeptical topics of uh, like anti-vax and, and vaccinations. Yep. Yeah, in Austria, there will actually be a big campaign for uh, the HPV vaccination now. Uh-huh. So from this month, February 1st of this year, 2023, you can get, get vaccinated by family doctors, vaccination centers of, of Austria or um, also in school at times. Um, also as part of the military service. So it's like a huge... You can basically get it anywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, except for maybe a gas station. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, um, it's it's free. Um, I remember that when I uh, got vaccinated against um, HPV, uh, that was like oh, ages ago. <laughs> I think that was like 2006 or whatever. Mm-hmm. That was a long time ago. And I still had to pay a bit. It wasn't much. But there was like a, a little a little part of the vaccine that I still had to pay for myself. And this one will be completely free um, in Austria. And um, it's also good to do because it offers protection against um, nine types of the human papillomavirus and um, thus also covers the um, high risk types that have very high carcinogenic potential. So that means it will keep you from getting cancer, not not generally not in total but from this kind of cancer yeah cervical cancer yeah yes so it can it can save hundreds of people from cancer and hundreds of of people's lives so this is really really important just to give you a few numbers 90 percent of cervical cancer cases are due to hpv Mm. and after breast cancer um, cervical cancer is the most common form of cancer in women aged 15 to 44. So you don't want to get that. And if you don't have to get it, then because just getting a little needle, <laughs> then uh, you should do it. And if you're wondering, well, if it's, is it only for women? No, it's for all children and young people aged nine and over because most men don't have services. Yeah. So yes, but they can also get the virus. And they can also struggle um, with genital cancer caused by HPV. Yep. So it's still good for them to take that. Yeah. And, and, th- and th- that is one misconception. The other misconception is that that um, it can only be transmitted uh, through sexual intercourse or sexual sexual action. Yeah, and this is also not true. It's skin to skin. But it's not true. <laughs> so this is why people tend to think that after your, your, you begin your sexual life and you become sexually active, it's there's no use uh, and there's no reason to, to vaccinate against HPV. This is not the case. This is not true. So you're still better off getting the vaccine mm-hmm. because you can be exposed in many, many different ways. Exactly. And then also like condoms don't protect you from an infection. So yeah, if you can get it, do it. And if you have a child that's over like nine or older, then also get get it for them yeah. because um, like have them have them uh, vaccinated. Yeah. Because why wouldn't you? <laughs> it's like very skeptic of me, I know, but like why wouldn't you? You, you can protect you or your child uh, against cancer. Yeah. Um, and against an infection. So like why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. For free. <laughs> so. <laughs> you, yeah, that's a cherry on top. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So. Um, 
there's a lot of misinformation. There's there's a lot of misconceptions about these, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, with many other diseases like COVID nineteen, uh, there are disinformation campaigns as well being run by anti-vaxxers, anti-vax activists. So yeah, it's it's uh, important to know what the dynamics of these disinformation campaigns can be. And there is an organization, the European Digital Media Observatory which is a fact-checking network that since its inception in 2021 has grown significantly. Now they are covering 25 EU member states and Norway with 37 fact-checking organizations. And the reason why I mention this is that because they periodically collect the most frequently encountered, thus probably the most viral narratives and topics of disinformation across the region and publish their findings in monthly reports. And a couple of days ago, they published an overview of the last 18 months titled Pandemic, War and More, 18 Months of Disinformation. And the findings published in the report showed that the main topic in 2022 was... What was it? What do you think it was? Um, The war on Ukraine. <laughs> yes, that's correct. The war in Ukraine. With the early phase reaching 59% of the total detected disinformation. So... Once it started, the level of disinformation around that was skyrocketing. And uh, the disinformation narratives that kicked in there covered a large scale, stating that the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky is a Nazi, a Satanist, a drug addict, a coward, etc. So these were frequenting the online media and uh, that the Ukrainians were pro-Nazi. But interestingly, the objectivity of this is shown by the fact that they do not distinguish based on whose side a piece of disinfo favors. The only criteria is that the claims are false. So there was a pro-Ukrainian kind of disinformation campaign going on as well with the ghost of Kiev, for example. And also the investigations don't go into detail as to the sources of this information. They only focus on the content. And obviously COVID-19 was still a big thing in 2022, but it peaked in December 2021 slightly going downwards after that, gaining more than 51% of all the disinfo detected in December 2021. But then after it was basically replaced with the war in Ukraine as a topic. And when the winter kicked in at the beginning of 2022, climate related topics were on top, only to be surpassed soon after that by the war and the war-related disinformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a year ago, isn't it? Yeah, so in the report, you can see things, the different statements, the different pieces of disinformation. They give you the details as to when they were first detected and whether they can still be detected in the online space. And most of these claims are still circulating, which is absolutely mind-blowing. But there is still this idea circulating that the pandemic is a hoax. It started in June 2021 and it's still there. But with regards to climate change, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it's it's not real. Climate change doesn't even happen. And we tend to think that that narrative is not very strong anymore, but it still is. There are still a lot of people out there denying global climate change. Yeah. So, well, I wouldn't say shocking, but it's a very informative piece of publication. Mm-hmm. And I recommend it to everyone because it's good to browse through it just to give you a vague idea as to <laughs> yeah. what we're facing. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I actually just looked it up. Mm-hmm. Putin's war on Ukraine started on the 24th of February, which is by the time of our recording tomorrow. Yes, exactly. So then then it's a year. Yeah, actually, we could have had that as our uh, This Week in Skeptical History, because Mm -hmm. that was based on a lot of misinformation. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible. It's been going on for a year. Yeah, I think we we all would have hoped to by now uh, say something different about it, but... um, Yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. Something uh, I want to talk about, which is, again... Some, please, something more lighthearted. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's also not awesome, but it's lighthearted. Uh, or lighthearted ta then war. Because I want to talk about information network homeopathy or more like Münsteraner Memorandum again. And that is um, the Münster Circle. They are mm-hmm. closely related, but they are not 
ENH, like they're not information network homeopathy, but they're affiliated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because they, they put out a new memorandum and it was written by Norbert Aust, Sabine Breiholz, Edzard Ernst, Iris Hundertmark and Oliver Scholz. If you recognize these names, yes, it's because part of them are in information network homeopathy. <laughs> But quite a team, yes. quite an illustrious team. Yes. Yeah. It's a good it's a mm -hmm. good team and <laughs> I met most of them like no I like actually like all of them. It's, uh, the, the text is about homeopathy in pharmacies because that is something that we all agree is this is giving wrong legitimacy to homeopathy. Mm -hmm. It's like if, if you want homeopathy and they say, oh, we have to order it or we just have to and it will be here at four o'clock, then you think, oh, it's so important. It has to be like delivered from another space and, and, and it's, uh, it has to be ordered. Well, some of them are also like some mix that in their back room <laughs> but um, it's not a good option yeah because as we know homeopathy doesn't work beyond placebo effect and that's why the Münsteraner Kreis so the Münster Circle <laughs> where which are a group of people that advocate more knowledge and critical thinking about homeopathy and they um, appeal to pharmacists in Germany to not advertise it as a working therapy to not mm. do it by yourself And to also don't tell your customers that this is like working well, that this is a mild, good, um, blah, 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 effective um, alternative, because it is not effective. <laughs> and it was a bit awesome if they wouldn't, uh, if, if pharmacists wouldn't teach about homeopathy anymore. <laughs> like, don't you teach your apprentices about homeopathy. Like, don't keep it running. <laughs> so no. that's what they advocate for. Yeah, let's just hope someone reads this and um, will do it. Because, as I said, it's like it's the point where homeopathy is big because you don't really need home, um, prescriptions for homeopathy. Usually you don't, unless you go to a homeopathic doctor, which should be um, an oxymoron in itself. <laughs> it contradicts itself, but it is not as we know. So yeah, let's just hope that a lot of people read this and do it. And hats up for uh, the Münster Circle for writing that because it's it's a good piece. Mm, okay, and I have a feeling that we're gonna revisit the topic of homeopathy <gasps> be, later maybe. on in the show. <laughs> uh, but before that, uh, I'd like to point out something that is very disturbing because. Very often we talk about disinformation campaigns and that they are being generated by people, organizations, even governments from the background uh, using bots and all that. But we rarely hear about the actual culprits behind these. And this is why it's important that a couple of days ago, the results of an international undercover investigation have been revealed. And it was this in investigative work was coordinated by a French media organization Forbidden Stories and involved journalists from 30 outlets, including The Guardian, Le Monde, Der Spiegel and El Pais, as well as Israeli investigative journalists. And the undercover team posed as people who wanted to delay elections in an African country and approached a team called Jorge, which the investigation revealed is led by a certain Tal Hanan, a former Israeli special forces operative. And Hanan claims that they have meddled in more than 30 elections all over the world, in Africa, South and Central America, the US and Europe, in the last two decades, with the use of hacking sabotage and automated disinformation campaigns employing bots and fake accounts so the classic stuff and the results of the investigations have been revealed uh, obviously tal hanan denies any wrongdoing but the guardian made a podcast episode in which they reveal all of the details the techniques applied and the people involved in this black ops operation and it's really disturbing Because it, it gives you a scale. If, if one organization, a couple of people in Israel can do so much damage, if that's true, that, that more than 30 elections were meddled in by this team, then imagine what government-led organizations could do. These people are basically mercenaries. So they do the job for whoever pays them. It could be governments as well, but we can rest assured that they are not the only team of this kind in the world. 
there are many many teams like that as well and they make big money with doing that so this is when you think like yeah we are doing the skeptical work uh, as volunteers uh we are doing this in our free time and and trying to do something about this but this is basically a no win situation that we're in we will never be able to catch up with them because they have the resources so this is why it's very disturbing you'll find the link in the show notes mm-hmm. do listen to the podcast yeah. uh the guardian podcast about this and you if, if you're anything like me you'll feel like yes i want to f- tackle this i want to fight them i want i want to put a stop to this somehow and then you go back to what i said earlier about where you can help and you go do that and then you'll make a difference an actual difference so <laughs> yes. the cranky uncle team the guerrilla skepticism on wikipedia that's how we can try to fight disinformation campaigns all right but This has been all the quickfire news that we prepared for today, which means that we are about to find out who's been really, really wrong lately. Yeah, and although we have talked quite a fair bit about homeopathy um, <laughs> already this episode, <laughs> I don't want to let anyone uh, go unrewarded <laughs> for uh, being <laughs> really uh, wrong. So, uh, yeah, because there has been a group that actually gave out a very dangerous and stupid advice as Edzard Ernst calls it like dangerous and stupid because I think I talked about it uh, before that we have shortages in Germany of um, fever medication of antibiotics especially for children right like I think I talked about that Mm -hmm. and of course it's a problem these shortages because there are children not getting medication that they need and if for example i i don't know i think i mentioned it on the show that for example luna already had two bronchitis this year and for one she actually needed antibiotics and if you don't have that for bronchitis it can be very bad Mm -hmm. and there are children out there who can't get medication fever medication or or antibiotics or other medication and you don't want that happening (laughs) but what you also don't want to have happening is is the German Central Association of Homeopathic Doctors suggesting to switch to alternative medicine as a solution. (laughs) Well. (laughs) Because they said, we have homeopathic medicines that have been tried and tested in practice for more than 200 years, and they can replace many medicines that are currently not available. Um, That was a quote from uh, Dr. Michaela Geiger, who is the president of the German Central Association um, of Homeopathic Doctors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yikes, you know, right? (laughs) No, that is ridiculous. So, I mean, she did did, um, give a bit of a qualification um, in in that statement. She said, well, we know that cancer drugs such as um, tamoxifen, for example, cannot be replaced by homeopathy. So like, yeah, thanks. Nothing can be replaced by homeopathy. Exactly, it's like, thanks for saying that, but nothing can be replaced by homeopathy. Like, a glass of water can be replaced by homeopathy. That's how much medication is in there. Thank you. First of all, (laughs) there is one side. If they believe what they say, then they are completely incompetent. They have no idea what they're talking about. If they know that they cannot be replaced with homeopathic products, then they are just cynical disgusting human beings who are willing to risk people's lives or people's health for their material gain that is outrageous oh it's probably that if they would suggest to switch cancer drugs for homeopathy that they would probably get taken to court because of malpractice or whatever and that's why they probably don't say that but yeah uh, but they should be taken to court anyway because they are irresponsible. Yes, and it's it's funny because like try it and test it in practice for more than two hundred years. It's <laughs> that doesn't mean yeah. it's effective. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yes, it's a uh, <laughs> yeah. They are never an option uh, unless you want a bit of sugar. Yeah. So it is it is ineffective. It is not suitable for any patient. So for giving out absolutely dangerous and also illogical and stupid advice. Um, the German Homeopathic Doctors Association receives this week's prize for being really wrong. And it's very well deserved. 
Thank you. <laughs> yeah. They should be taken to court too. All right. Thank you very much, Onika. Thank you. And that basically concludes our show today. However, before we go, what we need is a quote. Yes. And our quote this week is a very cool one. It's also a very short and sweet one <laughs> by a Hungarian pharmacologist and skeptical blogger who is pronounced... Dezső Csupor. Yeah, Dezső Csupor. I hope uh, I copied that well. <laughs> <laughs> and the quote is... It's not artificial intelligence that is truly dangerous, but rather naturally occurring unintelligence, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> yeah, I actually translated it myself because he, he, he said it on Facebook not too long, two weeks ago. And I asked him if I could use it as a quote. And he says, yeah, okay. Awesome, and awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a good quote. It's a really good quote. I like it really much. So how, how is that sentence in, um, in Hungarian? Nem a mesterséges intelligencia az igazán veszélyes, hanem a természetes unintelligencia. I understood intelligencia on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you for, for coming to this uh, impromptu language lesson. <laughs> yeah, we can do that every time. Okay, so thank you very much, Annika, for joining me today. Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully next week there will be the three of us. After that, I cannot promise anything, <laughs> at least uh, on my part, because um, I'll be traveling again in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. I'll be going back twice to Malaysia. So Ooh. if there is someone mm -hmm. listening to this, from Malaysia or Singapore, please get in touch. Please let me know because I would love to meet you. <laughs> And, uh, oh, by the way, there is a member of the Hungarian Skeptical Society who joined more than two years ago. And I've never met her in person. But where we managed to meet up was in the middle of Singapore. So we organized a bit of a meeting. It was like like we, we had a chat mm -hmm. for about an hour and she went off and I went off. But we met for the first time in Singapore so awesome. and we're both <laughs> members of the Hungarian skeptics it was amazing mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah it's a small world mm -hmm. so please let me know because I'll be going back to the country Very twice <laughs> this uh, next two months mm -hmm. anyhow so thank you again Annika thank you and many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in please keep doing so and until next week goodbye tschüss bis lat hello <laughs> This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe